This is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September the 14th, 2021, and this is episode 2955 of the Survival Podcast. We're going to be talking about cryptocurrency today. A lot of my views on crypto over the years have changed, and not so much like... Crypto being good or crypto being bad or you should be invested in it and not the fact that I think that like the majority of what we invest in should probably be Bitcoin and Ethereum. Those are your two best bets right now. But what I think is going to survive and thrive and what I think is going to die and how I think you should approach this. Like what should you use as a hardware wallet or a software wallet? A lot of that stuff's changed. Uh, one instance we'll talk about today is I no longer recommend the Jack's wallet. I'll tell you why when we get to it. Um, and I recommend the Exodus wallet, and I'll tell you why when we get to it. And uh, got a lot of other stuff that, that's going on. A lot of stuff that I think I've covered, and it keeps coming up as questions. I keep seeing it on social media. I keep getting the questions thrown at me when I'm doing YouTube videos about cryptocurrency, etc. And like I've said before, I'm not going to leave you alone about this issue. I know some of you want me to. I know some of you want it to go away. I know some of you think it's a plot from the New World Order to take away your beans. I understand that. This is the most radical economic shift, and you are in the middle of it right now, that you will see in your lifetime. If we are going to be the survival podcast, and if our survival involves economics, and of course it does, then we cannot ignore this. So we're going to talk about it again today. I have a very long outline. This could turn one of those monster two-hour jack shows. I'm going to make it not happen. I'm going to cram this into an hour. That means some of the things I'm not going to explain down the minute detail for the beginners. I'm going to give you resources where you can learn about those things so I don't bore the people that are moderately informed to uh, well-informed about the subject. And I'm going to just try to make sure that I am understood today and some things that you need to be thinking about in this space. Before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, is Ridge Wallet. Now, we're going to be talking about software wallets today. Uh, the Ridge Wallet is a true hardware wallet. Now, not a hardware wallet for cryptocurrency. A hardware wallet is, and it is hardware as we think of it, like nuts and bolts hardware. And it is a way to become a minimalist. I have reduced what I carry in my wallet by so much simply by getting rid of my billfold and starting to use the Ridge Wallet. And when I first was approached by Ridge, I was like, I don't know. It's I can't. What I said is I can't endorse a thing that I don't use. Right? I just can't. And they said, well, let us send you a couple. I'm like, I don't know. They're like, well, just send you a couple. Try it. So I took my billfold. I emptied out, put everything that would fit in the Ridge Wallet and the Ridge Wallet, looked at everything in the billfold and said, what do I really need? And there was a thing or two that was part of my EDC that I changed the way that I carry it. And then the rest of it, I just put it in the billfold and set it on the shelf. I said, it's there. Be a big boy. Try it. And three years later, I'm still carrying the Ridge Wallet, and that billfold is still sitting there, and I haven't missed it at all. I don't leave it in my truck because I leave it in my back. I take it out of my back pocket when I'm driving because it's uncomfortable, except I don't leave the house without it. Uh, I clip it like a liner lock knife into my front pocket, and it's just always there, and it just works, and it protects me from identity theft. Check them out today at RidgeWallet.com. Next up, Backwoods Home Magazine, easiest thing I've ever endorsed on TSP because I've been a subscriber since 1994 and a reader since 1993. I'm gonna, I want to go fast today in the show, so I'm going to leave it at that. But I'll tell you, you can get 24 years of Backwoods Home 
going back almost to when I started reading it. That's how much data there is there for 45 bucks on a thumb drive, or you can subscribe to the magazine, or you can do both. Links for both of those are in the show notes for you today. And let's jump right on into this. Like I said, we're going to move a little bit quicker than usual. Um, yeah, we're going to be talking about cryptocurrency, some things that I've changed my opinions on, kind of my updated views, updated recommended resources, stuff like that. I do want to start out with a little bit of the most basic information. I'll go quick for those of you who already understand this, and I'll go slow enough to give you a basic if you don't, and I'll give you resources where you can learn more if you need them. So first of all, I want to talk about what makes cryptocurrency work. Because you get all these clowns like Peter Schiff saying, it's all fake, it's vaporware. They don't understand anything. I, I listened to Peter Schiff in a debate, and he said, Bitcoin's fundamentally worthless. And one of the other debaters said, what is the value of the Bitcoin, net, Bitcoin network? And he said, I don't know, but it's worthless. See, when you say you don't know a thing, you don't come out and then make a definitive statement about it unless you want to look like a clown. And it, it pays me to say that because Peter Schiff's an excellent economist. He just doesn't understand Bitcoin. He thinks Bitcoin's technology. He doesn't understand what it is. It is based on technology, but it's not technology. Bitcoin is a network that allows people to exchange value. And all cryptocurrency, one way or another, attempts to do this. Some do it better than others. But the real reason that cryptocurrency works is because I can send you, let's say, one Bitcoin or one Litecoin or, or what have you. And you get exactly the amount that I send you minus a small fee to provide the service of making that transaction. Okay? And you get the one I sent you. And it can't be double-spended, and it can't be replicated. Even though it's data, you can't... Like, if you think about if I write a poem, and you want to start making copies of it, Control-C, Control-V, Control-C, Control-V. In fact, once you Control-C, Control-V, 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 you can make as many copies as you want. Can't do it with cryptocurrency. And once you have it... It's very difficult, if not impossible, unless you're dumb, for somebody to take it away from you. This makes wealth transferable across the world in seconds for almost no money relative to the cost of doing it any other way. That's why it works. That's the most simple definition of why it works. To understand more about this, I recommend, it's a very old playlist, I actually had the, the gal that does it for a cryptocurrency called Dash on the show years ago, And it's called Dash School. It's six videos. Three of them, the bad news, are propaganda for why you should use Dash. I don't actually hold Dash. I don't see Dash as being a long-term viable thing. Um, it might be around, but I don't think it's, it's, it's not something I recommend. Okay? But the first three videos have nothing to do with Dash. They're all how blockchain works, etc. If you struggle with this, watch that video. It's the best simple resource that I have. The two cryptos that I recommend are Bitcoin and Ethereum. I want to talk about what makes them special in the most basic way possible. I just explained that we can send coins or tokens to each other and know they're not double spent, know they're not counterfeited. That's why they work as a whole. During the American Revolution, for instance, the Continental Army was paid with Continental script, Continental bills, Continental money. Right? The colonists made their own money. It was called the Continental And they say, well, it failed. Well, the reason it failed is the British brought a ship in, and they put a press on it, and they started making and counterfeiting it and dumping it into the continental economy to devalue the money. Hmm. What does that make you think of when you think of what the Federal Reserve does to its own money today? Okay. That's how it was, that was how it was devalued. So the fact that that can't be done makes it work. With Bitcoin, it was the first. 
and it defined, and basically you have to think of it like it discovered the concept of absolute known scarcity. 21 million units, there'll never be 21 million in one. You know the emission schedule, that means how long it's going to take before they're all available into the 2040s. And then once that's done, everything gets paid for with transaction fees. And no matter what you do, you can copy it, but it's not the same. It's not the first, it's not the original, and it doesn't have the horsepower. There are two things. Unfortunately, Mr. Schiff is not capable of comprehending this. There's Bitcoin, the asset. That's the ones and zeros that make up the token that you hold in a wallet somewhere or send to somebody else. Like you buy something from me with a piece of a Bitcoin. That's that piece. Then there's the network that all that happens on. And the network enables many things beyond just the transactions of Bitcoins. And the network is fueled with a tremendous amount of energy. And that energy is looked at as a bad thing by people that want to create FUD, right? But the reality is that energy is security. And that's what makes Bitcoin special. It is the most secure network you can conduct transactions on in the world that has ever existed. It is the most valuable thing that humans have ever created in less than two decades. It will soon may be the most valuable single, most valuable single thing humans have ever created. And it is the most successful thing that humans have ever done. And it was done fully decentralized. And there is no cryptocurrency that is more secure than Bitcoin for the base function of money from a standpoint of scarcity plus reliability and, and overall security. That's what makes Bitcoin special. And that's as far as I'm going to go with it today. What makes Ethereum special is when Ethereum came out, they decided to build something that you can build on. Now, people are building on Bitcoin now. There's ways to do it. It's a layered approach. But Bitcoin, I'm sorry, but Ethereum was designed to be built on. Ethereum was designed to be a thing that you could use. It has issues, in my opinion. My biggest weakness that I see in Ethereum is that it's multiple, multiple times changed its economic policy. From the day that Bitcoin was fully released as this is Bitcoin, there was a inflation uh, bug in the very first rendition of the code. Uh, Satoshi, whoever he, she, or they were, along with some other people helping, fixed it. And since that moment, while there's been some things that have changed at Bitcoin Core, the monetary policy, the monetary policy being 21 million issued over this time frame has not changed. Bitcoin has changed its monetary policy multiple times. If you're looking for stability, Ethereum isn't it. But Ethereum, again, was designed to be this thing you could make and do and build other things with. Now, there's lots of competitors for that today, and some, I believe, do it better than Ethereum does it right now, but there's so much buy-in already, it's very hard to move that juggernaut. And it is, I believe, going to be fixed to where even if it's not better than its direct competitors, it's good enough to remain the king, or maybe the queen, you would think of it, but Bitcoin's the king and Ethereum's the queen. And that's what makes Ethereum social. It was designed to be a system to build on to enable other technologies, both for transactions as we think of them, I send you $5, you give me a scone, and for transactions as we tend not to think about them. This thing that I owned, you now own, but it's not an Ethereum token that's doing that. Because this thing that I own, own that you now own, is the title to my car. And that would be a transaction. There's one transaction and you gave me money. Maybe you paid me in Bitcoin. But you could have a public blockchain 
where the government records the ownership of motor vehicles that defines that that title now belongs to you, so you truly own the car. Or that the title now belongs to your bank while you're paying off the loan. And lots of things do that. And again, some things do it better, but Ethereum was built to do that. And it has that first mover advantage, and it has a massive amount of what you would consider in a in a world of, like let's say, power tools, an installed base. And that's what makes Ethereum special. And it has an incredible group dedicated to making it work better. Now, what the hell is a Bitcoin maximalist? I didn't even know they existed until I started listening to a podcast called What Bitcoin Did by Peter McCormack. Um, I don't I don't think Twitter is the real world, so I don't spend a lot of time there. I don't spend any time there now, but I never really did. And I think this is the place where the Bitcoin maximalist lives in its most fulfilled glory of hatred of all things that are not Bitcoin. And a Bitcoin maximalist not only believes Bitcoin is the best cryptocurrency, it is the only real cryptocurrency. Everything else is a shitcoin. And these people are toxic because they literally attack anything that they perceive as a threat to Bitcoin, and they deny any use or function of anything that's not Bitcoin. And anything that something does that Bitcoin doesn't do, they say, but if, but if you were to build the technology with Bitcoin, Bitcoin can do all this. Bitcoin could be completely private. Bitcoin can be incredibly fast and light. It's called the Lightning Network. It's called Liquid Bitcoin. Now these things are being developed. The problem the maximalist does not seem to understand is that all of this takes money. People don't do this for free. They don't do this out of the good of their heart. There are a lot of people that do some contributions to open source projects and all, and they're like, if I do this, then the world will be better. But in the end, like the type of technology that's being built is expensive to build. And a lot of these other tokens are able to build it and make it work and fund themselves through the sale or the appreciation of the tokens. Now, the, the maximalists would say, well, that's just garbage and stealing people's money. No, it's not. Not if it actually does what they say it's going to do. And you, you can't deny that a cryptocurrency, for instance, like Algorand, that's being used by governments, financial investment corporations, etc., around the world, doesn't do what they say it can do. It doesn't do it fast and doesn't do it cheap. And that does not give value to the underlying unit with which the, 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 the activity is transacted on. And, and the way you have to understand that is, let's say, and it could be Algorand, Cardano, any of these things, that, and Ethereum, same thing, except, again, these other technologies have lowered the cost and inc increased the speed of this type of transaction. If a government says, I want to make sure that we have absolute knowledge of who owns every vehicle, And that we have a system by which, through something called a smart contract, that when Tony sells Bob his truck and, and, and Bob finances it through First Bank of Texas, and Texas, the First Bank of Texas holds the, the title, when Bob makes the final payment to the Bank of Texas, immediately a contract is executed and that title moves to him, that there's not value in that. And Algorand has a tech that does things like that already. So does Cardano, so does you know, uh, Adam, so does a bunch of other things, Polkadot, etc. All of them can do things like this. But, but the way that that network runs is that you have to pay for the transaction, even if you create some sort of, like the Texas title token or something, right? It's not even traded. It's just used internally on its own network. They still have to pay the bill in Algorand and, or, or whatever, or Ethereum. 
And then somehow there's some form of security being performed either by proof of work, which is mining, or proof of stake, which is putting up some of what you hold and saying I'm validating the transactions. The network provides the security, and the network is compensated in the securities token. Now, if that sounds hard to understand, I'm sorry. I don't know another way to put it and, and kind of keep the speed up on this. But wh what I'm saying is that these types of assets can perform functions. The network itself provides the functionality, the security, the reliability, the execution, and the people that run the network are compensated for doing that. And, and they happen to be compensated in a particular crypto, whether it's Ethereum or Bitcoin. It doesn't matter what it is. And some of these technologies have been purposefully built to do this. And what the maximalists would say is we should build this technology, but then all the money within it should be Bitcoin. All the payments, all the compensation should be Bitcoin. Well, flat out, the altcoin industry moved faster because they were able to raise capital more quickly. And, and, and that you're not going to change that. You're really not. And I'm going to go through some tokens and types of coins that I think will survive 10 years or more. And then I'm going to end with how the maximalists could end up being right and how Bitcoin could kill them all. Or even, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them, even that I think are going to be around. So I want to start out with, I think there will always be a place for like a Monero or an R, pirate chain, um, some form of a privacy currency. And I think the two that we have that are best right now, as far as being accepted and being on multiple exchanges and having liquidity and, and having multiple uh, wallets that are, are software wallets, we'll talk about a bit, that can, that can work with it, and it's easy to use and easy to get into is Monero. And then the most private crypto that we have is Pirate Chain. There is nothing more private than Pirate Chain. I've looked at it all. There's nothing better. And there's nothing with more horsepower as far as the team behind it than Pirate Chain uh, or Monero. So those are my two picks. But even if they were to somehow crash and burn, there'll be something like them, in my opinion. Next is Litecoin. I think Litecoin's been around long enough. It's extremely fast. It's extremely cheap. Uh, every cryptocurrency that's ever come out since Litecoin, that basically their entire pitch to the market is, we're like Bitcoin, but we're faster and cheaper. I'm like, Litecoin does that. And they were there first. And they do it better. And it just works. And it's going to work. And it has enough buy-in to have security that's not as good as Bitcoin's network, but comparable to. It's a very secure network. You don't get a bunch of miners that are bored, and Bitcoin's price is down, and let's just play with some other network and see if we can harass it and, and do a, um, a, 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 what is called a 51% attack on it. That doesn't happen to Litecoin. It just doesn't. There's enough activity there to provide the security. There's enough value in it to provide security. If it's not Litecoin, I think there will always be a place for kind of something that's not Bitcoin, that's fast, light, and cheap, even if Bitcoin's fast, light, and cheap. Um, so I think there'll be something like that, and I think Litecoin is probably the most likely one. I think someone like Cosmos, Cardano, Algorand, Polkadot, somebody like that, that is that, that's marketed today as an Ethereum killer. We do everything Ethereum says and more. We do it faster, lighter, cheaper. Doesn't that sound a lot like how everybody tries to attack Bitcoin, though? King and queen, right? But I think that there is a case. That's why I hold some of all, you know, Cosmos, Cardano, and Algorand, I hold some of all of them. Just in case one of them becomes like the Litecoin to, even if it's just the Litecoin to Ethereum. And those are the three that I think have the best chance of that. 
not because of where their price is at today, but because of where their tech is at today. And of the three, the one that I see like sneaky, like sneaky like a snake, in, in, in gobbling up contracts and agreements is Algorand. And if you follow crypto news, you'll see them pop up here and there and what have you. But if you go to their website and you start looking at the existing use cases and partnerships and networks that are already built and being built, it is mind-blowing how far they've come so fast. And um, they were built primarily by an incredible um, uh, gentleman. He's an Italian guy named Silvio Macali. He's an MIT professor. He's a brilliant cryptologist. He's won some incredible awards. They were able to uh, land a bunch of money to market and push and, and, and keep building out those relationships. It's a very inexpensive asset. It's incredibly fast, and it is perfectly designed to do the things that I just told you make Ethereum special. And I don't think it'll supplant Ethereum. Um, I don't think it will be worth $200 you know, in five years. But I think that it will be around, and I think it will be the most successful in actually doing real-world applications of that group. I also could be wrong. Everything I say could be wrong. Nothing here is investment advice. Um, I think community-specific coins uh, will have real applications. Float is about to come out with Float token. Uh, the Brave browser uses the Bat token. Bitcoin maximalists hate this idea. And it's another place I think they're in denial of reality. And the reason I think these tokens will work is any currency, right, any store of value, anything of value, any means by which value can be transferred, truly derives its value from the economy in which it circulates. If you build a browser and you build an installed base of millions of people who use that browser and then you tell advertisers, if you want access to my people, you have to pay in the token that they accept, You'll have advertisers that will pay for access in that token. And if the token gets used and the token does what it's supposed to do and the token provides the value that the network expects from it and that the, the, the customer expects from it, then it's going to be around. Float token, etc. Because what's happening and what's going to continue to happen is people don't want to spend their Bitcoin. And it's going to get more and more and more and more the case. Because there are going to be ways that if you build wealth in Bitcoin, you will be able to never, ever sell your Bitcoin and still generate massive amounts of income from it. Some of it may be taxable. Some of it will never be taxable. But, but that is going to be the case. So people aren't going to want to let go of it. People aren't going to want to move. It's going to become digital gold in the, the realest sense possible, a sense that an older man who's set in his ways like Peter Schiff will never understand. It will be the core that makes all of the rest of this run. So if I just think that Bill did a really cool meme on Float, I'm probably not going to pay him in Bitcoin, especially five years from now, even in $5 worth of it if I want to give him five bucks. Once I put that Bitcoin away, it's like a trophy asset. I'm never going to want to pull it out. But somebody's going to sell Bitcoin somewhere, sometime, someplace that can be stacked into that third bucket that I talk about with your, your savings and your money. We have three basic buckets that we hold value in. And it's not always dollars that we're holding there. You could hold real estate property. You could hold tools, right? You could hold uh, food that you're going to eat. could go in any one of these three buckets the same way I'll describe it with money. Your first bucket is cash flow money. 
You get a paycheck, you put money in your checking account, you know by the end of the month that money's spent. Even if the electric bill, the cable bill, etc. hasn't come yet for the month, that money, there's no sense in looking at that money as savings because it is the cash flow that you fund your life with. Bucket one. Bucket two, midterm savings. This is your 90-day emergency fund money. This is money that I know I don't need for a couple months. I might need it as an emergency. I might. I don't want to lock it away yet. Maybe even some of it eventually goes into bucket three, but for now it's in bucket two. These are your savings accounts, your CDs, your midterm holdings. And then you have bucket three. Bucket three is what we, we, we like to call retirement money, but we've been, well, we've been kind of brainwashed to what that means by the wealthy. What the wealthy teach you through the apparatus of financial liars that they've built and through marketing and, and what have you is save for your future, invest for your future in a 401k and what have you and, you know, save as much money as you can. When you get old, start pulling your money out of there and hopefully you have enough to live until you die and whatever's left over leave to your family. What the wealthy do is they leverage that asset in their retirement and they never sp they never sell most of it. They hold it. If they ever sell it, they only sell it to buy something that is going to have longer-term value. And they create generational wealth, and they hold that money in trust. So when you hear all this shit about the, uh, the death tax, you know who it hits? it hits? It hits farmers and ranchers that aren't smart enough to move their property into trusts that live forever. That's who it hits. It does not hit the, the, the billionaires. When Bill Gates dies... There'll be no death talks on any significant amount of his wealth at all. And a hundred years after Bill Gates is in the ground, and this is not lauding him, this is telling you what they do. A hundred years after Bill Gates is gone, the wealth he left behind will be worth more than it is today. And it will still be acting in many ways at the discretion he set before he died. Again, I'm not lauding him. I'm not talking about how great he is. Don't take that the wrong way. I'm telling you that's what they do. And I'm telling you that if you do this right, that's what you'll have the potential to do. And even if you're not super wealthy when you're gone, your grandchildren will be. And we need to start thinking differently about this. And that is going to lock that up, that, that core asset. I think eventually even things like Ethereum. All the Ethereum that moves will be Ethereum that's used to pay for the network. right? And that's what social network cryptos specific are. So now I can pay you a few bucks for the information you gave me or whatever, and I, I'm willing to spend it. The other side of it is, and I've talked about this before, if, if Brave built the Brave browser to work with Lightning, first of all, Brave wouldn't have been able to build the Brave browser when they did it because Lightning wasn't a thing yet. So the, the, the people behind Brave weren't willing to wait for a technology that enabled Bitcoin to come around. But number two, then somebody's over here building Lightning And we have to keep adapting our thing to work with your thing. And plenty of people will, and it'll be fine for that. But by doing it themselves, number one, they raised $35 million worth of capital with an ICO, which can't do anymore the way they did it anyway. But they did, and then they were able to build it. But the bigger thing was since they built the token the way they wanted it, and they controlled and managed its network, it integrated seamlessly and it works. The reason it's a pain in the ass is something I won't get into today, but it has to do with tax law, not the technology. Okay? It's, it's seamless. And that's what Float is going to be. You're going to be able to transact on their marketplace or pay people because you like the contribution they made. It'll be cheap, it'll be fast, and it'll work inside there. And there's no need for it to come out of there until you want something you can't get inside there. 
And so I think those will have long-term, not all of them, but some of them. They will be that type of coin. Stable coins, there will always be, as long as we have a U.S. dollar or a euro or a Canadian dollar that people use and think in, there will always be a, a thing that, hey, I think I've made enough money on this thing, I want to hold something that has less volatility, and there will be, always be a place for stable coins. It also enables U.S. dollar or other currency transactions across the world at a, thing, at a rate that basically makes Western Union useless. So a lot of people have talked a lot about how in El Salvador right now, Bitcoin is legal tender, and you can spend and use Bitcoin, no capital gains, nothing like that. Okay, great, fine. It's fine. However, using Strike... If you have relatives in El Salvador and you're working here in the United States and you want to send them 500 bucks, you're going to pay 30 to 40 percent of that in fees if you use something like a Western Union to send them money. That sucks. That's a lot of money. And you certainly then you can't afford to send them 10 bucks. And a person in El Salvador could be gotten through the week on an extra 10 bucks. Now, what if the person in El Salvador, even though Bitcoin's now legal tender, says to you, "I don't like Bitcoin. I don't want to use Bitcoin." And my friend down at the uh, restaurant that I'm going to go buy my coffee from, he doesn't want Bitcoin. He'll, he has to take it, supposedly, but he doesn't, he, nobody's going to make him. Or even if, he, if he, he's willing to take it, I know he doesn't want it. I don't want to use it. We want to use the dollar. I can send you $10 worth of Bitcoin, and you can get $10 in U.S. dollars in seconds for free. And that requires a stable coin. That requires a USD or USDT or TUSD or something like that. So I think there'll be, we don't need all, there's like a billion of them. We don't need them all. Right now, some of them seem to have problems, and that's why I'm glad there's lots of them on multiple chains. So that if somebody, you know, if, if, if you have $10 and you lose one, you have $9. If you have a $10 bill and you lose it, you have $0. So I think it's good that there's many of them now, but it will get weeded out because we don't need them all. I think DAO tokens, but they won't be the conventional sense of a cryptocurrency, a DAO token, basically, a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization, and it would allow me to run a company and tell the U.S. government in many ways to go screw with many of the requirements and regulations that they have, especially, and, and this is like the piece of the DAO that people don't really understand its value right now, is that you're not my employee anymore, and you're not my contractor, and you don't work for me. But you do because I have controlling interest in the Dow. But you're a partner. See, if 10 of us get together, we form an LLC, we're all partners, even if you only have 5% of the company, none of the protections of the federal government, which I seem to be problems versus protections, that say what I have to do for you as an employee apply to you anymore. You're a partner. You're acting as... Now, if we employ you in your own company, then you actually have employee protections from yourself. But if you decide you want to come in and work extra hours and not get paid because it needs to happen, there's no one to come down on you because you did that as a partner in the business. You have a stake. You have a full say, even if it's less than my say. DAOs enable that, and they do it in a way that is too complex and dynamic to talk about today. But if we incorporate those with what we'll talk about in a little bit, NFTs, we could end up in a place where there's things right now that you would spend the rest of your life in federal prison for, That for now, anyway, there's nothing anybody could do to stop it. And the more of it that happens before they try to stop it, the more of it that will become impossible to stop. So I think DAO tokens are here to stay. 
Now, which ones, I don't know. It's like saying which companies are here to stay. But that technology is not going anywhere. And you got to think of the Dow token as more a technology, less a currency. More like a, a governance token. A governance token that also has a reward uh, component to it. Um, there are even exchanges, uh, like Chainlink, for instance, where the people that hold the tokens get the rewards from the exchange fees. It's it's pretty cool. And, and like if you tried to do that using the technology that something like an E-Trade was, was built on, you would go to prison. Not maybe. You would go straight to prison. And they can't really do it because they don't really understand it and it doesn't really make sense. And who do you go after? Who do you go after? Nobody's in charge, but everybody's in charge. It's, 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 it, I can't go deeper today and keep this moving. Um, but that's going to be around. Honestly, the rest is a crapshoot. I think of the thousands out there today, like if you go to like CoinMarketCap or CoinGecko or something and look at how many tokens there are, it's like 12,000 or more. And thousands of them are already defunct. There's, there's some that even they work, but really there's nothing happening. They're never going anywhere. Tons of the stuff that came out in the boom from like 2016 to 2018 is just gone. Dead. Death. And some of them were good ideas. Some of them even re reasonably worked. It's just that I don't care if everybody builds. If you go back to the 70s and the 80s, when people decided that Xerox meant copy machine, right? And there were multiple companies. Uh, Kia Sierra, right? Xerox, etc. You know, I think Kodak made copiers, like, and they all worked. But you didn't need 10,000 manufacturers of copiers. There would be a point where you don't have enough of the market share to maintain making copiers. And I think that even among the valid crypto projects, there's some that yes, they work, but they're Betamax. They might even work better, but they're Betamax. And this is what makes Bitcoin this long-term play for me. All these other things are dependent on their ability to do a thing. And Bitcoin is a thing. And that's why I think that even some that are really great may simply get eclipsed by things that are better. But again, the thing you have to look at is once you've built onto a platform and it works, leaving it does not make a lot of sense. So if you get somebody like the Sneaky Snake Algo, and they end up with 60 governments around the world running components on their network, that's designed in, as we used to say. In, when I used to do hardware sales, we used to do what's called OEM manufacturing. You're designed in. Which means until, like, I, I sold a piece of equipment into a company called Alcatel, and they built a rack system that would go into central offices. And until, and then that system was marketed and sold as the system that it was, and it was certified to work in that environment, that this, this is allowed to be in here. And at that point, two of those went in every rack system they built. If they built 100 of them next month, I was getting an order for 200 units. No one was going to remove me from that design. Until they did another new system, I'm there forever. In fact, there's a contract that I know, because I still know the engineer over there, um, that... I sold in 2001, and the product is still being made only because it's still designed into that system. And they use about 1,100 of them a year at about $2,000 a unit. And it, there are things that will do it for less, but unless that 
thing goes away unless and, and there's a lot of legacy use of it and it does what it's supposed to do and it just works. And, in, and the only way they're going to be forced to redesign and recertify it is if the company I used to work for stops making the thing. And that's only going to happen if they stop buying enough of the thing to make it worth making the thing. You got it? And that's how a lot of these, these ones that will survive will survive. If they get integrated into enough things that have semi-permanence, then that, that thing doesn't want to go away. So it's, it's a real crapshoot right now as to who's going to make it. But you have to, if you're evaluating one, always ask, what is the utility? And I've been saying that since 2014. What is the utility? What does this thing do? What does this crypto token or coin do? And does it really matter? If something else already does that, and it's already being used, and it's already adopted, and it's already designed in like I just described, it doesn't matter. I can make Bitcoin 2.0 tomorrow. It will work exactly like Bitcoin. If it doesn't, what gives Bitcoin its value? The thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people we call miners running hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of computers that secure the network. So I make Bitcoin 2.0, right? And maybe I even make it do one thing a little bit better. But if it doesn't get an adoption, it doesn't matter. I can't control C, control V, my way to profitability here. And that's all many of these things are trying to do. Does it work? Does it do something unique? Does it do it, does it better? Does it matter? Does anybody care? If it, it doesn't check all the boxes, throw it out. I don't care if it doubles in value tomorrow. It's not going to make it long term. If you want to use speculative day trading, that's not me. Um, Next, many of them have uses, but not necessarily value of the investment type. So many of them may end up working with some other crypto that's the real value, but they may enable something. But there will, the thing will be around. It will have a value per token, but that value per token, it's not going to go up very much. It's going to be limited. Maybe it's because they made 800 gazillion of them. I mean, I beat on people for Dogecoin all the time, but it works. It works flawlessly. If, if you want to buy something in Doge and the other person will take it and you both have a wallet with Doge in it, you send it, it's there, it works. But when you know, you're know you issuing tens and tens of thousands a day units, it's, some, it's ridiculous, billions a year, you have an inflation issue and you're never going to have the underlying value sustained because no matter how much demand there is, there will always be more supply. That would be one example of something functions fine. Not something to invest in. It just isn't. Um, now, the Bitcoin maximalists who really torque people off, who understand all the things I'm talking about today, could be right if they ever develop enough investment capital to be able to develop all the technologies that can run with Bitcoin to do all these things and negate the need for them. I don't think they will, but they could. And there's a lot of this stuff that you think, well, you know, Ethereum does that or Cardano does that or whatever. The Bitcoin can do, and we just don't it's, – it's, it's not been marketed as well. People are not aware of it. Um, we can do NFTs with Bitcoin using something called liquid Bitcoin. It's extremely fast. It's extremely cheap. We can do high-speed, high-rate transactions with Bitcoin. It's called Lightning. Those are just two examples. And into the Lightning network is, is now coming something called Taproot. And Taproot is going to make a transaction on the Lightning Network very private. Not Monero private, not certainly not Pirate Chain private, but very private. And the thing about it is, if there's one transaction with it, 
Okay? It's private-ish. If there's a thousand, it's more private-ish. If there are millions of transactions a day in it, it's private enough that dissecting it will become nearly impossible. So we could have Bitcoin solve the privacy problem. And that would only be one one layer up, two layers. So, so you have, with Bitcoin, we say layer one, layer two, layer three. If you built, if it's Bitcoin, it's layer one. If it's built to run on Bitcoin, like Lightning, or work with Bitcoin, it's layer two. If it's built to run, when you hear these terms, this is what the basics are. If it, it's built at another layer so that it could incorporate Lightning and Bitcoin and do another thing, it would be layer three and so on. Okay? And it is possible through this layered approach that Bitcoin could eat everything. Again, I don't think it will, but that's what that's why maximalists are maximalists. Now, I'll tell you the other thing I think that makes them the way that they are. They are all in on Bitcoin, most of them. And I don't just mean that all the money that they hold in crypto is in Bitcoin. Yes, there is that. But many of them, they have literally mortgaged their house, taken the equity, and put it in Bitcoin. When they buy a car, they never pay it off. They finance it. They take all the money they could be making car payments with, and they put it in Bitcoin. Some of them have literally leveraged credit cards into Bitcoin. Don't do this shit. But they have gone all in, and, and over time, because it's been a solid investment, if you've rode through the roller coasters, it's paid off, and some of them have lots of money in Bitcoin. And so anything they perceive as a threat must be attacked, even if it's valid. And that's why I don't have really any time for these people, even though I recommend them, uh, some of them, as sources of information. I don't have time to debate them about this because it's it's like debating a mass Karen about the efficacy of a vaccine that you know doesn't work and she will never accept it. That That's literally how they are. And it's not because they're not smart. They're not like the mass Karen that way. It's because they, they, they have bought into a thing in a cult-like level And they literally can't stand to hear anything that says you might be wrong. And they will literally destroy each other. If, like, in their little Twitterverse, if one of them comes out and goes, well, you know, I see a use case for something like Monero for private transactions. And if, if he's like a big name person that's well known, they'll destroy him. They'll, they'll, they'll uh, cancel culture them. You can look up a guy named Robert Breedlove to see an example of something like that happening. Though what he did was a little more beyond than that. Um, but just just know that so that if you come across this, you are, are not as confused about it as I was when I did. You know, I would hear the term maximalist once in a while, like that's just a person who thinks Bitcoin's the best, or that they're all in on Bitcoin. And I didn't realize the toxicity that's there and the anger and the rage. Um, next, my recommendations for exchanges. I still think that the easiest way to get started is Coinbase. You yes, you have to give them your bank account information, your ID, and all that. That's called KYC. But once you have a Coinbase account, you can buy pretty much anything you, that you probably should be buying until you know more. And it's really easy, and it, it works, and if you do what I'm going to tell you in a little bit, it's safe as hell. Okay, But that's a KYC exchange. Know your customer. There's also something called no KYC, and that simply means that the platform you're using doesn't know who you are. They might have certain information about you, like an email address or a phone number, but they don't know that you're Joe Blow and your social security number is 12345 and that your bank account is with Bank of America, and they don't know any of that stuff. And so if the government asks them, do you have Joe Blow in your database, even if they wanted to tell them yes or no, they could not really definitively say so. Okay. My favorite no-KYC exchange is CoinEx. 
It is incredibly simple and intuitive to learn, especially for what's known as spot trading. And that is simply, I'm going to buy a certain amount of cryptocurrency for a certain amount of money. I'm going to sell a certain amount of cryptocurrency for a certain amount of money. And if I sell cryptocurrency, I have it to sell. I'm not doing leverage, futures, etc. They have that. I'm not going to get into that. I don't think 99% of people listening to me should never touch that, certainly without a lot more education before you do. But for that basic spot trading, it's easy, and it lets you easily do limit purchases. And that's simply that right now, Algorand is, is trading at $2.10. I want to buy some of it. I think it's going to come down. I'm going to put an order in, and I'm going to put in $500. Bucks, and I'm going to say, and I'm going to, I'm going to put it into a stable coin like Tether. And I'm going to say, I want to pay $1.99. And if it does come down to $1.99, it'll trigger the order, and it'll sell if it's 2 o'clock in the morning when you're sleeping. You can do that, or you can just buy at market rate. Really easy, and you don't have to do KYC. Now, I think that it's really important to understand that just because I tell you an exchange like CoinEx is no KYC doesn't mean they're actually no KYC. And it's not doublespeak. It depends. What do you want to do? If you want to go on CoinEx and whip out a credit card or use a bank wire and buy for fiat, then you have to do KYC. They will not do it any other way because they don't want to go to Club Fed. They don't want to go to federal prison. And if they're taking dollars for crypto as an exchange in the United States, they better do this or they're going to go to prison, period. And then they also have to say, we're doing our part. Oh, great, Fed, don't come arrest us. We're doing our part to reduce potential money laundering. So if you want to put cryptocurrency on their exchange, turns it into a different kind of cryptocurrency and take it off their exchange, and you're willing to not take more than $10,000 a day off the exchange, you can do that without KYC. If you want to be able to withdraw more than $10,000 a day, or if you want to be able to buy for fiat, then you are going to have to do KYC with, with CoinEx. If you decided you wanted to use CoinEx for that, I might, just saying, I might set up two accounts with two different phone numbers and two different email addresses, and one would be KYC and one would not be. I'm just just saying, I might do that. Or I might just use Coin uh, Coinbase or somebody else as my KYC to exchange when I need to convert fiat, right? I think the best way to get your hands on cryptocurrency, if you have a business, is to accept it. Then it's very private in, in many ways. It's No matter what it is, if you use basic good techniques like new addresses, etc., each time you receive money. You can have a wallet, you hold Bitcoin in it, but every time you receive new Bitcoin, it can go on a different address in the same wallet. It's not a, Your wallet's not an account. It's a way that you access all your keys. And this is very important, not your keys, not your coins. So when you hear that like somebody hacked into Coinbase and stole some people's money, that doesn't mean somebody hacked Ethereum or somebody hacked Bitcoin. It means they hacked Coinbase. And Coinbase was stupid. And exchanges keep a lot of their crypto far more liquid so they can be moved around. They hold it in different buckets and mechanisms, and I don't want to get into that, but it's just that it is. I have not heard of anybody ever having their, their wallet that they hold the keys to hacked. I've heard of people being duped into or like somebody gets like some sort of like uh, software on their computer, some sort of viral software, the screen capture, and gaining access to their private keys or their, their phrase that they can use to restore a wallet with. I've heard of that happening. I've never heard somebody hacked into somebody's Exodus wallet. Inevitably, when somebody says that, what happened was somebody spoofed you into getting the data that they needed to access your information. 
The same as they might get your password to your email account and cause all kinds of trouble. So I don't want to hold on an exchange. So I want you, when you buy cryptocurrency, the only way you keep it on an exchange is if you've done like one of those limit order thingies I just talked about, or, hey, gee, the price of this thing is going up really, really fast. I think I might want to sell some. And then maybe you move the amount that you would sell onto there and put one of those limit order thingies on it so that it'll sell if it hits that. But if you decide you want to bail out and cancel that order, get it back off the exchange. It is safe in your possession. Anything else is it's in somebody else's possession. It's as safe as they make it. You can't control them. There's also something called DEX exchange. These are decentralized exchanges. My favorite is Polarity. Everything I'm mentioning, there's a link for in the show notes today. Uh, I have limited DEX experience. I actually have the guys from Polarity due to come back on the show again. We'll talk more about that, so we'll hold off on it till then. But that simply means that not only are you know KYC, there's no central authority in the exchange. And what I love about Polarity is you basically have your own wallet and you do hold your own keys. And if somebody took Tony from Dex and put a gun in his mouth on the ground and said, give me Bill's Bitcoin, Tony's going to die. Tony's going to die because he can't do it. It's not possible. You can't hack into Polarity and gain access to Bill's Bitcoin and Polarity can't gain access to your Bitcoin. We'll talk about more how that works when I have those guys on again. Um, biggest risk to cryptos right now. I don't want to steel man this. There are some risks. Number one, everybody's making money on shit coins right now. And it's going to end badly again. Remember the scene in Forrest, uh, Forrest Gump? So I went to Washington again, and I met the president again. And that's like if you've been in this for a while, you've seen the run-ups and the downfalls and the explosions. And it's why you probably are more bullish on a Bitcoin, Ethereum portfolio than anything else. And if you're new to it, you're like, oh, I missed the train and I need to find the next thing that's going to make me a bazillionaire. Right? The people that have been around, we know building wealth is boring, as I've said before. And it really ended badly in the 27-2018 cycle. And I put out a video saying, this is going to suck. Bloodletting is coming. I'll see if I can find that and add it in. But um, I, I literally had the internet flying monkeys show up and throw shit at me when I said that. You don't know anything. I'm like, everything's up the same. Every currency is up the exact Like, every graph looks identical to each other. There is no difference between this complete and total garbage, this valid project, this thing that's obscure and doesn't even work, that nobody works on anymore, and Bitcoin. They all look the same. This cannot be reality, and reality will always create non-reality sooner or later. That's going to happen again. And right now people say, but I'm making money. You, you can't have lost money in cryptocurrency if all you did was buy for the last year, no matter what you've bought. You, you can't. Now, if you bought Bitcoin exactly at $64,000 all in on one day, sure. But if you bought in over time, over the last year or two, you can't have lost money unless you are just not cut out to do anything with money. And you, that, that's about everything right now. It's stock market. If you if you had taken the, the the New York Times stock page and put it up on a wall, you know, a year ago, grabbed a handful of twelve darts and hurled it at it, and bought equal amounts of all twelve stocks, you would be in the money right now. And that makes people think that they're all heroes and they all are geniuses, etc. And when that happens, 
That's the Joe Kennedy moment when the shoeshine boy gave him a stock tip and he sold all his stock. Bloodletting is coming again. It will be different this time. It's always different. I think more of the quality projects will hold better through it, but it's still going to hurt. And the reason that this is a problem is it gives regulators a re Look at how much money got lost. Look at all this money got lost. We should have protections for people, etc. That's dangerous. It opens up the door. NFTs are tulip mania. And people have been saying that cryptocurrency and Bitcoin is tulip mania and blathering on about it since it started. And they're still saying it when there's more wealth built, built by Bitcoin in the last 10 years than just about anything else in the world. They're still saying it. But here's your tulip mania. And it's a lot like cryptocurrency as a whole. What part of it are you talking about? When people are buying CryptoPunks and when people are buying JPEGs that anybody can whip up in an illustrator in a day, when people are buying a JPEG of a square for a couple hundred bucks, buying a picture of a picture for a million dollars through these NFTs, this can only end in a big crash. NFTs won't go away. It's a brilliant technology. It allows you to fractionalize an asset. That's incredibly valuable. You could literally, if you own the Empire State Building, say, you know, the Empire State Building is a valuable property. We're going to take 10% of the Empire State Building and break it into a million fractions. Each fraction is an NFT. You can buy one. You can buy 100. You can buy all 10 million of them. And then you will be electronically paid off the revenue that the Empire State Building ends, uh, earns. That's what an NFT can do. That is a valid use case. The NFT could be how an Algorand network... Um, it, it could be how the Algorand network actually keeps account of Bill's title to his car. And a million other things. But this idea that people are going to invest in digital art and what they're actually investing in is anything that, that somebody can convince somebody else might be worth some money someday is going to end badly. It may end worse than the 2017-2018 altcoin crash. And it's bad because NFTs are so valuable as a technology in the things that they can really do, like I just said. But again, that opens the door for more of, I'm from the government and I'm here to save you. Um, leverage is high. So there's a lot of futures trading. And I think that eventually we have so many people leveraged up in so many ways This is also going to end badly, and a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money. And all it takes is one good market crash. And all these people that think they're heroes, that are yield farming and all this other crap that you don't need to know exactly how it works, just know that it's all, I'm borrowing money and loaning money at the same time. I'm borrowing money at 2% interest and loaning it at 5%. That's one example of how to do that. Well, the reason you can borrow it is your loan is collateralized, which means if the market swings, you have to sell to reduce your collateral, and then you end up wiped out on the other end of it. That is becoming something that everybody thinks is easy to do, and right now when the market is stable and up, it is. It is. But sooner or later, what goes up does come down. Even something that's going to go up over time like Bitcoin, reliably, I believe that if you... Buy a thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin or a million dollars worth of Bitcoin today. Put yourself into a coma in ten years. You're going to wake up happy either way. That doesn't mean there's not up and down cycles in the middle. It doesn't mean all the leverage can't get wiped out in between. And again, I'm for the government and I'm here to save you. Um, 
The stupid are jumping in. The, I call them the Doge boys. It's not just Dogecoin, though. All these people, these young people I talk to, I, my nephew has a lot of friends that are quite a bit younger than him and a lot younger than me. And I, you know, I hear YOLO and stuff like that from these people all the time. And, and like, again, when they get hurt, they're going to cry. And Liz Warren's going to come save the day, right? And I think the government as a whole, but not exactly how you think. I think the government is going to come in with regulation, but not extermination. But the government is going to use the technology against you. And people think they're going to turn, you know, Bitcoin into the New World Order surveillance coin. That's not really possible. It's not really possible. But what you can do is you can use technologies like these NFTs and things like this to create national cryptocurrencies and to create rules where people have a hard time going in between the two and where even if you can do everything privately behind the scenes between individual parties, if you ever want to come back into that, they can regulate that gateway. Um, they can actually create situations where, for instance, you can run something like a vaccine passport program on a blockchain very, very effectively. That's another problem. I think there's a lot of ways the government can interfere with this, and they will. The government can come in and say, well, all brokers have to do KYC. But if they don't completely define what broker means, you can set up a situation where, well, if you run a lightning node, you're considered a broker under the law. You're supposed to KYC people that you don't know and you can't know. Because one thing about lightning is, even if you can figure out who's doing transactions on either end of it, the node, you in the middle, doesn't know who sent what to whom. Everything's wrapped up in onion routing. It's inherently private, even as it is as a base technology. So there's all kinds of ways that they can interfere. I don't think they can shut it down, and I know they know they can't shut it down. So in how they get involved, they can cause problems, right? And I'll save some thoughts on that till the very end. This is going to go longer than I planned, but I'm still going to get it in in well under 90 minutes, I'm pretty sure. Um, here's some trends I think you really can't ignore, though. If, if you're like you're listening today, but damn it, Jack, I hate this crypto shit. Stop talking about it. But institutional money is flooding in. It is flooding in. Billionaires are buying Bitcoin. Billion dollar concerns are buying Bitcoin. But so far, it's only a fraction. It's a fraction of a fraction of what's possible. If five percent of institutional money goes into Bitcoin, you'll be able to retire on two of them. And that's probably an understatement. And I don't think you can, if you're a holdout on this, I don't think you can continue to ignore this. When you have Bitcoin go down and you have rumors coming out, well, MicroStrategy's insiders, who are just some bullshit some guy made up on Medium, right, say that they're getting ready to liquidate all their Bitcoin, and right in the middle of that bullshit, Michael Saylor comes out and goes, yeah, we just bought another 5,000 Bitcoin. Not $5,000, 5,000 Bitcoins. You know what's up. When you have Visa investing in blockchain technology, and you might have rumors come out like, Walmart says they're going to accept Litecoin, and then everybody jumps in for 57 seconds, so the Walmart's like, no, we didn't. Right? Those kind of things will happen, but the real institutional money is coming. The ETFs are coming. There is a massive amount of what's known as chartered money that right now wants to buy Bitcoin, but because of the charter as to how they invest, they can't. As more and more products are made that contain and give exposure to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, that money is going to pour in. You cannot ignore this. Be careful. Um, I'm sorry. Next, more countries are going to come on board like El Salvador did. 
it won't always look the same. Panama is probably going to go next. What Panama is going to do is they're going to normalize it, and they're not going to tax it for gains. They're not going to make it Panamanian currency, but they're going to make it a Panamanian de facto currency. A Panamanian citizen can go spend Bitcoin that's up three times what he was when he bought it. He's not going to pay anything. The guy selling the product will pay standard income tax on the profit on the product. That's what Panama is going to do. They're going to integrate it with their banking system, and they're going to start doing trade in Bitcoin with El Salvador. That's going to happen. And, you know, people look at this and say, no. Well, if I told you five years ago that by 2021, a, not a country would have crypto, which I said would happen years ago, and it did the year I said it was going to happen. But I said that a country would adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. You would have told me I was crazy. Uh, Paraguay is going to get jumped on this, and pretty soon what you're going to have is a cartel. You're going to have the South American, Central American crypto cartel. And every country that relies significantly on remittances, Jack Maulers is going to be the next freaking Jeff Bezos, guys. Jeff, Jack Maulers is going to be the next guy that owns a trillion-dollar company. I'm telling you right now, because any country right now that relies heavily on remittances from the United States or any Western country, especially smaller the country or the more remittances they have, they can drastically increase their GDP just by using this technology, by reducing these fees that are anywhere between 20 and 40%. Some of these countries, you know, remittances are 30% of their GDP. So if you, if you reduce the cost of remittances... By 40%, you're adding like 20% to your GDP with nothing other than changing the way you let your people do business. Of course they're going to do it because it's in their best interest. It's in the best interest of the people of the country, and it's the best interest of the greedy politicians and even the greedy bankers of that country. And the greedy entrepreneurs and the benevolent entrepreneurs and the good politicians and the bad ones. It's in everybody's best interest, so they're going to do it. Again, there's gonna, they're going to call it the crypto cartel. You watch. You watch, bros. I'm telling you right now. Um, next, the dollar has been far more damaged than the current economic situation indicates. All the gloom and doom that everybody that was pointing at the dollar and saying, look at what's happening with inflation, has just run away from the original projections. If you told somebody in 2015 who was a believer in runaway inflation, The quantity of dollars that would be printed and the amount of debt the United States would have by 2021 without COVID in there to make it happen, they would have never believed you. I'm talking solid, real-world, U.S. dollar-based economists that are gold bugs like Peter Schiff. Peter Schiff wouldn't have believed the number in 2015 that we're looking at in 2021. The dollar is screwed, and we're screwed because we have created not just massive inflation, I talked about this in my Miyagi mornings today, so you can look it up or listen to it when it comes out on Friday in the podcast. Um, we're in a deflationary economy now. And I don't mean that we have deflation as people would think of on everything. But our entire economic system is geared toward deflation now. The cost of production is going down of everything. Technology is bringing deflation whether we want it or not, and we built the system on inflation. We have matter and antimatter, boom, coming together. Can't ignore that. And this is one of the ways you can mitigate that. My recommendations on wallets, I'm going to go really quick on this, okay, so I can get this done, like I said. Um, first of all, if you're holding on an exchange 
Do not hold more than a small amount of money, or if you're holding something significant for a trade, put it on there long enough to execute the trade and get it off. Exchanges have been hacked. Exchanges can narc you out to the government. Okay? Um, exchanges can screw up. Exchanges can lock your account. Okay? All of that can happen. If you're holding money in your own wallet, none of that shit can happen. Okay? And if you're holding in your own wallet, even if that wallet crashes, if you have the public and private keys recorded, you can restore it somewhere else. It's also a risk if somebody gets them, they can take it from you. But your money is as secure as you can make it, and when you have an exchange do it, it's as secure as they can make it. So don't hold on exchanges. There are some custodial solutions that make sense. Multi-signature walls and stuff, we're not going to get into that today. But when you're getting started, you're not going to be doing that anyway. Do not hold on exchanges. Not your keys, not your coins. Remember that. Be careful how much you hold in software wallets. They are secure, but if you have a software wallet, it's on a device. It's as secure as the device. When the device is connected to the Internet, especially when it's open, it is subject to people using screen capture software, keystroke software, etc. And so it's also there all the time. If it's on your phone and somebody gets your phone and maybe they can figure some things out, next thing you know, you know, they're stealing all your money. So it makes sense when you're using um, larger amounts to move over to what's called a hardware wallet. And this, you know, some of them look like a USB thumb drive, etc. The two best known and most proven over time are the Trezor uh, and the Ledger. Now, I have started using Exodus as my software wallet, and I've done it for a variety of reasons. Okay, One is, I used to recommend Jax. Jax was a great wallet. Jax has started to have bugs and problems that just they don't seem to care to fix. They don't see, Maybe they are fixing them, because a lot of bugs they've had, they fixed. Um, but they don't communicate well about it. There's no real customer service. And recently, for instance, with a little bit of Bitcoin in my Jax wallet, I could not receive more Bitcoin to it. When I pulled up my Bitcoin and said receive, there was no address. And it would say copy address and say address copied, and there was nothing there. And it wasn't a single device. Like I had a copy of that Jax wallet on a Mac, and I had it on an iPhone, and it didn't work on either one. Two separate installs. So I swept all of the Bitcoin off that onto another wallet over to Exodus. And that's what I use. So Exodus I use because it is really well run, and they're constantly making it better, and they do communicate well. And if you want to, I don't. If you want to, you can exchange within it. It's basically a wallet and an exchange in one. Hold your own keys, etc. The reason I use it is because it is a beautiful interface. The user, user interface is beautiful. You can make notes on your transactions for record keeping. It's awesome. But you can basically manage your portfolio there. It has a great portfolio management feature, lays everything out, lets you see your full portfolio. I use a Trezor hardware wallet, and Exodus works with it. Now, you might wonder, why would you use a software wallet in a hardware wallet? Okay, so when you hook your Trezor up to your device and you're running Exodus, it senses that that wallet's there and you've paired them, and you're... you're your Exodus wallet knows what's in your hardware wallet, but it can't get to it unless you decide to plug it in and do it. So you can have one software wallet that you can look at a snapshot of your entire portfolio, 
But the vast majority of what you're holding long term is on the hardware wallet, and it won't work unless the two go together. The hardware wallet can still go somewhere else and work, but the Exodus wallet won't work on the stuff that's on the hardware wallet unless you put the two together. It's like a key and a key and a key. You got your public key and your private key, plus you got your Exodus key and your hardware key. And that is very, very, very secure. And so that's why I've chosen Exodus, and I learned about Exodus from Peter McCormack, who is a maximalist, but I would say one of the few non-toxic maximalists that does what Bitcoin did. But when I tried it, I was like, this is, this is what I'm recommending from now on. I want to disclose something here, because it could happen. Maybe they'll tell me to go screw. I am trying right now to get in touch with people at Exodus. I'm trying to bring them on as a sponsor. I know they sponsor Peter's show. I know my show has more numbers, but probably not as many crypto enthusiasts. But I'm hoping I can bring Exodus on as a sponsor. I feel if I didn't disclose that while I'm here pimping them, and then later I said Exodus is now a sponsor, it would be disingenuous and it would be not fair. Um, in many ways, I'm probably hurting myself because I'm sure if we agree to a sponsorship, then they're going to like start monitoring how many downloads I send them or something like that to judge the value. And if I push a bunch of people there in advance, actually I'm weakening my position with them. So I don't think this really benefits me right now to do this, but I feel the ethical thing is to disclose I do want them as a sponsor. But that also should tell you how much I believe in what they do. If you're a long-term listener, you know sponsors are not just people I sell to or sell for here. Um, I would not necessarily trade inside a wallet with you know your customer, and I would say the one thing about taking something like an Exodus wallet, doing KYC with it, And then managing your whole portfolio with it is now you've KYC with somebody that has some level of visibility into your whole portfolio. Exactly how much visibility they actually have, I don't know yet. But my gut is to keep those separated. In the words of the great song, you got to keep them separated. All right. Next up, um, some things I think we already. Um, I think there's some things about crypto that are already here, but we need to be honest with ourselves about. like, And we need to be on ourselves, honest with ourselves about what's coming. More regulation and reporting requirements are coming. We will never keep crypto as Wild West as it is today. It's not as Wild West as it was a year ago, and it's certainly not as Wild West as it was five years ago. And we just need to be like, more regulation is coming. And I do believe that... It does make sense to plan in the future, especially for like Bitcoin and Ethereum that will be long-term wealth in your family, that it's go you're going to end up disclosing it. But remember, there is no tax because you bought cryptocurrency or moved it from one wallet or one exchange to the other. You only pay tax when you actually sell. So if you can account for where it all came from because you bought it, okay, just understand that. Um, you're probably going to have to pay taxes on crypto in some way at some point. Maybe not all of it, but some of it at some point. We should adapt our strategy now, not later. We should start thinking like, I'm going to break off this portion of my portfolio and it's going to go into an IRA. Well, that's going to make it exposed. Or it's going to go into a trust. Or I'm going to be loaning it out to earn income on it. That's going to make it reportable income. I'm going to borrow against it. In a long-term strategy of retirement where I never actually spend any of it, I borrow against a portion and borrow against a slightly larger portion every year for the last 20, 30 years of my life. I leave my kids with 40% of my portfolio and the balance they'll have to pay off. That's all going to be public. And we need to start at least thinking strategy-wise about that right now. When 
I started pushing this all toward John Pugliano, who hasn't completely embraced it yet. He's being a little Peter Schiff on us in some ways. Um, he said, but they're going to tax it. And I'm like, yeah, but they tax a gain on Ford Motor Company, and you don't not buy Ford Motor Company or, or you know Exxon or whatever, right? Like, just because something's taxed doesn't mean it's not a valid investment. Most valid investments are taxed. So we need to adapt our strategy now. And we need to think about how they're going to do this. Like, there's shit right now. It's not really clear in the infrastructure bill that's probably going to pass, and they're going to blow another $3 trillion. But I want to give you the story of the 1099K in the, in, in the uh, merchant account and how that happened. So whenever these assholes pass a bill, they have to at least pretend they're trying to pay for it. And they have to say, we're going to raise money not by adding a new tax or not by passing a new law, but simply by making sure we can actually do what we're already supposed to be doing. So in the Patriot Act, to pay for some of the shit that they used to spy on the American people with that was supposed to protect us, they had a, a, a bit of that law that was thousands of pages long and nobody read before they voted on it that required companies like PayPal or Stripe or anybody that you know, runs a, a, a merchant account for you. If you were taking payments in them, to at the end of the year send you a thing called a 1099K. It's a miscellaneous uh, uh, 1099 that shows like miscellaneous income. And so I think people were always under the impression that like if you sold stuff through PayPal, that PayPal told the government how much money you got every year. Before the 1099K and the Patriot Act, they didn't. Yeah, I'm, I'm not kidding. Really, they didn't. Now, if they wanted your information and they had reasonable cause to seek that information, they could get a warrant and go to PayPal or Stripe or whatever and say, we would like Joe Blow's uh, information on his account for the last five years. And they could get all that information. So generally people were honest about it because it was on the book's money. Okay, But there was no form that went straight to the government that, that equal, you know said this is how much the person took in. And that number is not necessarily the number you're going to put down. Because there's things that affect that, like rebates and chargebacks and things like that that may not be directly reflected in there. But that number, now you're going to be more honest. And what they said is, by doing this, people will have to pay more in taxes. And we estimate it'll raise an extra gazillion billion dollars in taxes, and that helps pay for this monstrosity. They're doing the same thing with crypto right now, and they will continue to do things like that. We're closing existing. These people should be paying their taxes. Anyway, the law already says so. We're just adding reporting requirements so that we can do Like, that's coming. But in the end, regs may actually make you rich if you're not stupid. If you don't look at this as, I'm going to fix it so even the NSA can't figure out what I'm doing, man, and you understand that wealth is only really valuable if you can use it, and that means that some of your wealth at least needs to be above water right, and visible, then the more regulation normalizes this, the more regular people think it's okay, the more vehicles like ETFs, etc. can exist, the more pension funds will say, hey, we're going to put this up for our people. And specifically with Bitcoin and Ethereum, now that they've started the burn cycle where it's become at least slightly deflationary at times, if that happens, then... Saying that one day the price of Bitcoin could be $10 million of Bitcoin is not even a stretch. And that would simply put Bitcoin at the global market cap of gold today. That's all that it would do. And Bitcoin, whether you can accept this or not, is far more scarce than gold. It's far more scarce than gold. And if you get to the point where it's regulated enough and it's normalized enough 
that something like the Teamsters Union is recommending that pension funds put 5% in Bitcoin. Like what that does by itself is just insane. There's only so much left. And as you open up things like ETFs, etc., when Bill in, in, in Billings buys one or two Bitcoins for his retirement and puts it in his IRA, it's gone. He's not selling it. It's, it's become long-term hold. And it's going to be the last thing he'll liquidate in his retirement. And as we start locking up more and more of this, the pressure on the supply, the supply shocks that are going to occur are going to be extreme. And regulation, while not something I welcome, is actually in some ways, it will disrupt it initially, but it will speed up the total adoption. And so while I don't like it, I still accept that it can make me wealthy. But I think the real goal here with all of this is not to be rich. And I don't mean the goal is to not be rich. But the goal isn't, my goal is to be rich. Right? That sounds kind of weird. The goal is not to be rich. No, no, no. My goal isn't to be rich. My goal is in the future to not be poor. My goal in the future is to not be poor. Because many Americans who have reasonable incomes are on a pathway to poverty during retirement. And they're on a pathway to generational poverty right now. Money must be in assets right now or you lose. You cannot afford to hold cash long-term right now. You cannot. And when I say cash, I mean you can't afford to hold uh, money markets. You can't have You can't afford to hold large amounts of your money in savings. You can't afford to hold it in a box under your bed. You can't afford it because inflation is not... Well, it is transitory, but that's a fake word. Transitory means temporary. Right? It doesn't mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean it's going to go away. It means if you say... like It's, it's literally like a conjured up mysticism word by government and economists. There's, inflation is transitory. Well, let's say that inflation this year is is 15%, and next year it's 7%, and three years from now it goes down to like 2.5%, the num- and they're lying about it, but that's what the, the lie number is, and 2.5% is considered reasonable. Well, it transitoried. It didn't transitory. All of the in-between, all of the lost value in-between never comes back. When you hear transitory, you think it'll go away, but it won't go away. The devaluing has occurred. Like, we lost... Up until 2019, up from, from 1913 to 2019, the dollar lost 98% of its value. Before all this shit took off, 98%. It was slow and sustained, and the economy absorbed it fairly well through most of the period. But it wasn't transitory. It didn't go away. You're never going to have a dollar buy what it bought 20 or 30 or 50 years ago. It's not going to happen. And we know this. So we can't afford to have our money there. That's how you get wrecked. And I, I think when you look at the future and you realize the things that government can do, like tax your property, seize your property, having something that is that literally you can have nothing on your person that indicates that you have it, you can step off an airplane in another country, And if you've memorized a phrase, you can have your wealth back. Nothing in the history of mankind has ever worked that way. Not even a Swiss bank account. 
works that way. It's completely immune to what others can do to it. And in the world we're moving into, in the flux that we're moving into, that may become the most valuable piece of knowledge a person can have, is the knowledge of how to acquire, how, how to access a, a reserve of wealth, that battery. I, I don't think you can afford to ignore this. If you want to, fine. Then you better make sure that you're smartly invested into other assets. Because if you're holding cash in any form over the next 10 years, you might as well just cut, cut it in half right now. Just cut it in half. You, you, my dad, my grandparents, and my great-grandparents, if they worked really hard and saved their money, they could build wealth. Maybe not become billionaires, maybe not become millionaires, maybe not become incredibly rich, but they could pay their houses off, they could hand them down, they could pay off a vehicle and drive it for 10 years, and then they could take the money that they weren't spending on those expenses, they could throw them in a bank account, a CD, etc., and they could save money and they could build reasonable wealth that way. When I was a teenager and I started working jobs and working side hustles and working at the, uh, my dad's coal mine a little bit for him and working at you know the junkyard and stuff like that, and I started to save money, I started to actually accumulate money. And I went to my dad, I said, Dad, I have like over $1,000. He said, go open a bank account. So I did. And I put the money in the bank. And they paid me like three and a half, four percent interest, something like that, four and a quarter, I think. And one day I went back to him, I said, Dad, I have like five grand. He goes, go put half of it into a CD for three years and see how much interest they'll give you. And it was over 8%. You can save money that way. When you have inflation at two, and you can put savings away safely at eight, and you can make six, you don't get rich, but you don't get poor. When your cost of capital is 10 to 15% or more in real lost value, you can't afford to do it. I would say listen to more of Michael Seller's stuff if you want to understand that better. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Again, all of the resources I mentioned and more are in today's show notes. You can check them out for today's episode, which again is 2955. And uh, if you just search for my crypto views at the site, you'll probably find it really, really quick. Um, remember, if you like the show and the work that we do and you think that I gave you some value today and you want to reciprocate in a way that won't cost you anything directly, when you do your online shopping and you know you're going to do some in the next month or two, probably in the next three months, you're going to do a lot as we head toward Christmas time and what have you, uh, just start your online shopping at tspaz.com, tspaz.com. No matter what you buy, if you start there, you help support us. And you can find all the items I review and everything. Instead of an item of the day, I got another one of those announcements for you about a sale. Uh, Anchor has another sale going on, a lot of really great product. Anchor is my favorite, absolute favorite value electronics brand. They stand behind everything. If something's wrong, they will replace it, period. You, you will never have a problem with them. I never have. I have sold tens of thousands of Anchor products over the years uh, just by you know reviewing my reports and stuff like that as an affiliate. And I'm telling you, I have never had anybody say, Anchor screwed up, and they didn't fix it. I've had a few people say, I got a shitty one or whatever, but I'm like, did you did you return it yet? No, not yet. Well, do it, and then come back to me. If Nope, never a problem. Um, they also build product that I believe is equivalent to, you know, big brand names in quality that sell for two, three, or four times as much as their competitive products do. And that's what you call value-to-price ratio. I'm not big on the sticker on the item that I buy. I want it to function. 
here's some stuff that they have today, and it's just a small uh, assemblage of, like, they probably have about 40 or 50 items on today, you know, USB charger cords and stuff like that uh, that are great compared to paying for the name brand ones, etc. But they have the Liberty 2 Pro uh, wireless uh, earbuds on sale. These are 100 bucks on sale. I'm not going to spend 100 bucks on a set of earbuds, but many of you, you know, that's not a stretch. I, I don't value the quality of music that much, but some of you are guys like audio snobs, audio files. Um, but I would say they, these compete with name brands like Beats and shit in the $300 range. So they're, I think they're regularly $150. They're, they're 33% off today. If you want a good set of wireless earbuds, but you don't want to spend that much money, they have their uh, Spirit.2 uh, earbuds on sale today for $49, 30% off. I would buy those. If I didn't already have a set, a different set by them, at that price, if I needed a set, I would buy those right now. Um, they have a, uh, a really great flashlight. It's the LC40 Boulder rechargeable. It's 17% off today. That makes it 18 bucks and change. This thing is bright, like blinds you in the eyes bright. Uh, it recharges. It gets a really good life out of a, a charge. It also has variable intensity, so if you don't need it on super bright, you can make it last longer, like most of them do today. There are better rechargeable tactical flashlights. There aren't better tactical flashlights for 18 bucks and change. Um, the the smart charge uh, Bluetooth transmitter is on sale for 14 bucks. This basically you plug it into like a cigarette lighter port, 12 volt port in your vehicle. And you have two USB ports. Big deal. Like a lot of things do that. 14 bucks, so that's pretty good. But it also, if you have an older vehicle, like my old Ford truck or whatever, and your stereo doesn't pair with your phone, you can play podcasts, play music, and make phone calls with it. Uh, it you can change the stations on it, and it will broadcast across the entire FM frequency. So you set it to like 87.1, and you turn your FM radio to 87.1, and assuming there's not some local station on that channel, then you hear your phone uh, and your, your music, etc., over your stereo speakers in your vehicle. So a lot of you, you don't want to go spend 300 bucks to upgrade your stereo in your older vehicles, 14 bucks in your gut, your game. And then they have a really great uh, USB and HDMI hub. Um, this thing is badass. Sells for like 79 bucks Today it's on sale for $30. That's just some of the stuff they have. So check this out. Uh, if you go check out my write-up today, Anchor Items on Sale Big Time, um, you, you'll find a link where you can find on Amazon all of the stuff they have on sale. And they also have the, uh, the Anchor 12-watt speakers, which you can get two of them, and they pair together for stereo sound Bluetooth. Um, they're on sale through Renewed for $30 a piece. So one's thirty, two is sixty bucks. I have them in my outer shop where I don't have my high end system, and it's everything I need when I'm out there working on projects. Great stuff, great value to price ratio. And let's wrap up with our song of the day. And for our song of the day, for a few weeks anyway, we're going to be doing the Guess Pan Jack's Pandora Station uh, challenge. Yesterday, the first song from this station was I Wish Grandpa's Never Died by Riley Green. And remember, whoever, whoever you hear this week won't be the artist that the station is based on. It's an artist that has similar sound through the Music Genome uh, program. And all I do is I pull up the station of choice for the week, and I keep hitting forward until I'm like, yeah, I'll play that song today. So this one's going to throw you. This is going to throw you a little bit since of the song we had yesterday. But today's song is Fortunate Son... By Credence Clearwater Revival. So, so far you have a Wish Grandpa's Never Died by Riley Green. And now you have Fortunate Son by CCR. And you're trying to guess the artist 
that I base this station on. You'll get two more uh, hints this week, tomorrow and Thursday's show. And then Monday next week, when I give you the song of the day for then, I'll tell you who it was this week that this station was based on. And I will put a link in the show notes where if you want to add it to your Pandora, you can add it. And no, Pandora's not a sponsor. I'm just doing this because I use it. And I think it's kind of fun way for me to share my stations that I've trained. Some of these stations I've been training for five, six, seven years. Anyway, here you go. This is one of the, the best old songs out there. And it's dramatically short in duration for how iconic it has become. If there is a song that typifies kind of like older movies and images of the Vietnam War, I think it's this one. With that's been Jack Spear. Go to another edition of the Survival Podcast. Survival Podcast.